0: Do you care about the big stuff but hate politics? Yes, I guess. Is your name Jesse? And yep. my name is Reese. Yes. And this is Canadian Politics is Boring. It is. We have had 200 episodes of endless fun. We talk about some crazy past politicians. Mackenzie King, who used to get literal advice on how to run the country from seances. Pierre Polyev, stealing chicken fingers. So this is not your <laughs> typical Canadian politics <laughs> how did I forget show. Forget that. <laughs> Canadian Politics is Boring. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. That's Canadian Politics is Boring.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living.
2: Do you still use checks? Uh, Probably the last one I used was five years ago. Uh, Yeah, I haven't since I was paying rent.
3: And do you use them for anything else?
2: Uh, No, only maybe depositing checks from my grandma.
1: (laughs) Just checks from grandma. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. In a newfangled digital world, Is there any room left for old school checkbooks? Hi, I'm Paul Havershude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Today, you ask questions, we went looking for answers. Like, are checks really still necessary? What with your credit cards and your fancy e transfers? You also asked about the cost of decaffeinated coffee. Why is it so expensive when you're not even getting the caffeine? And Marianne from Yellowknife had a question about our humble Canadian dollar. She wonders why, at 74 cents US, it is so humble. Up first, a question for anyone who enjoys a nice bottle of wine. And also wouldn't mind paying less than 20 bucks for it. All right, hang on a sec. Let me check the time. Oh, yeah. Hey, look. It's wine o'clock.
4: Hello, cost of living. This is Ian Guthrie from Ottawa, wondering why is Canadian wine, particularly from B.C., and Ontario more expensive than ordinary wines from, for example, Portugal, Spain, or Italy.
1: Jennifer Keene,
2: you are our senior Chardonnay correspondent. <laughs> yes. And I, I may have to uh, question what goes on in your house if it's wine o'clock already. It's wine o'clock somewhere. <laughs> uh,
1: Jen, is it fair to say that Canadian wines
2: are more expensive than wines you get from other places? It, it is fair. But it also depends. I talked to Gervinder Batya about this. He's the editor of Quench magazine, which covers the wine business in North America. And he says, generally speaking, Ian has a point.
1: Is it possible to purchase uh, good quality wine from British Columbia for, say, let's say $20? It is possible. Is it possible to purchase uh, a greater range of wines in that price point from, say, France or Portugal or parts of Italy, absolutely there is. Okay, so you can get more bottles for
2: cheaper from other countries. Why? There are several reasons for this. First, we are pretty new to the wine game. Ontario, which is the biggest wine region in Canada, only really got going in the 1970s. And B.C.'s industry, the second biggest, is really just a baby when you compare it to Europe. You know, look at the oldest winery in France, the Goulain Winery. It's been around since the 11th century. That's a long time. That's a long time. That is a lot of crushed grapes. (laughs) Uh, But— Being around that long matters because? It matters because if if your family has owned a vineyard for a 1,000 years, you probably don't have a mortgage on it. Uh, Imagine you want to get into the Canadian wine business. You'd have to buy up acres of uh, vineyards in places like Prince Edward County in Ontario or the Okanagan in B.C. So you're buying some of the most expensive land in the country at today's prices. And then there's all the stuff that you need to make the wine.
1: When you visit a lot of wineries in Europe, um, a lot of them have, you know, the concrete tanks that have been there for 70 years. A lot of them have these big neutral barrels uh, that they use for fermentation that they've had for, you know, uh, decades and decades. Um, uh, Those things all cost money. So a lot of their stuff was paid off in like the Enlightenment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is an advantage of having a thousand-year head start. But we aren't just competing with those old world wines either. Countries like Chile and Argentina are also big players in the industry. And labor is pretty cheap over there.
5: I know that Argentina's, um, you know, their minimum wage for workers is something crazy like 190 USD a month. And you look at it, it's over $2,000 a month when you look at Canadian labor. And that just results in, in, a, in a massive difference in terms of cost of production that goes into producing these wines.
2: Lauren Skinner-Bukcevic works for her family's winery. It's called Painted Rock in Penticton. But like the majority of wineries in Canada, they're quite a small craft producer. And then that is another reason why it's hard for us to compete on price.
1: Just because they're smaller and, and size matters here?
2: Yeah, not just the size of the winery, but the size of our overall industry. Canada is a tiny speck on the global wine stage. Italy, Spain, France, and the U.S. make more than half the wine in the entire world. We have about 12,500 hectares of vineyards, and Spain has about 900,000 hectares under vine.
1: Under vine? What are you, a vintner?
2: What I know is that they have a lot more vineyards than we do, and that means they've got economies of scale.
5: They're able to have a commercialization of wine that we're just, it's impossible to do here. There's mechanization that can happen out in the vineyards that just doesn't make sense for these small Canadian wineries to do. Um, You know, I'm I'm just not going to have the types of machinery, the size of tanks, the, the stuff that they're able to do in these countries because of the scale that they're working with.
1: It's not just wine, really, this kind of thing applies to. I mean, think about getting something like strawberries from California or oranges from Florida. There's a reason they're cheap, and there's a reason we buy them from those places, because they're growing them on a big commercial scale, and that makes it cheaper, and that cost savings can more than make up for the extra transportation and shipping costs.
2: Right, but I think intuitively, we kind of feel like things that come from Canada, that come from close by... They should be cheaper, right? So it can be hard to wrap your head around. But one other thing that Canadian wine folks told me is that Canada as a country just doesn't support the industry as much as other places do. European governments subsidize the wine industry. They provide marketing support. Lauren says we have a different approach here. I think we have such a legacy
5: of prohibition in this country; it's it's infiltrated so much of our view of of the wine industry and of the alcohol industry in general. I don't see that the same way in France. I lived in France. I lived in Bordeaux. I did my MBA over there. It's just a very different outlook towards alcohol. There's not this taboo around it, and then from that taboo, these layers of taxation around effectively punishing people for for purchasing.
1: Okay, yeah, but she's in the wine industry, so you're going to put the idea of something like a syntax in front of her, and she is automatically not going to like it. And, you know, if you step back and think about it, I mean, you can find Canadian bottles for lower prices. Canadian wines, you know, You can get one for under 20 bucks.
2: Yeah, you can. You can find inexpensive Canadian wine. There are some big producers in the country like Peller Estates or a company called Arterra, which owns brands like Bodacious and Jackson Triggs. But those wines often are something known as international domestic blends, which is kind of controversial in the wine industry in Canada because it means that they import juice and they combine that with domestically grown grapes and they bottle it here. So it's not exactly the same as what uh, Lauren is doing at her winery in Penticton.
1: Yeah, and those kinds of budget bottles, they don't tend to get the highest marks from like wine connoisseurs.
2: (laughs) Not always, but sometimes a box of wine just does the trick, Paul.
1: (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thanks, Jen. And thank you, Ian, for the question. It's questions and answers today on The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Havershrood. Nick Anson from Calgary riddled us this. How can you pay more for something, but get less? I had to switch to decaf for health reasons, but I noticed that it's more expensive than regular caffeinated coffee. Why is it more expensive with less caffeine? To get an answer for Nick, our most caffeinated producer, Danielle Nurman, trekked into the belly of the decaffeinated beast itself. And emerged
6: jitter free. Workers are tearing open burlap bags of green coffee beans and dumping them into a silo.
4: Uh, Right here is about 2.8 million pounds of coffee.
6: Barry Close is walking me through the Swiss water decaffeination plant south of Vancouver. He's the VP of operations.
4: We get a lot of Brazil coffee, a lot of Colombian coffee, a lot of Central American. Every day,
6: beans from coffee-growing regions around the world come here.
4: Mexican coffee and a fair bit of coffee out of Sumatra.
6: Barry loves coffee, but not caffeine.
4: I ended up here for a reason. (laughs) I was going to ask. Yeah, no, I'm very, very caffeine sensitive. I have one cup of regular coffee a day. And then after that, I can't drink caffeine. So I must... True believer in our product, let's put it that way, a true consumer of it.
6: If you're like Barry, you may have noticed an extra charge when you order a decaf latte. Why? Well, my friends, decaf coffee doesn't grow on trees. While some coffee varieties have less caffeine than others, they all have it. It's how the plant protects itself from hungry insects. All coffee beans are harvested in their natural, stimulating state. But beans destined to become decaf have to get the caffeine sucked out of them. Barry Close says that takes more travel, more time, and more money.
4: Whenever you send coffee from an origin country to another country for additional processing before you can actually convert it into a cup of coffee, your costs are going to go up. It takes a lot for us to get coffee up from origin, whether it's South America or Central America, through our facility, then over to the East Coast, and then shipped over to Europe.
6: There are two ways to take caffeine out of coffee, with chemicals or without. The chemical method uses solvents like methylene chloride to extract the buzz from the beans. All that pure caffeine can be recovered and used in energy drinks, pop, and pharmaceuticals. Barry Close says his operation doesn't recapture caffeine because the only cost-effective way to do it is with chemicals. And that's not his style. He uses the Swiss water process. It was invented in Switzerland, but the water comes from Vancouver. It uses a lot of technology and no chemicals. Just water, green coffee extract, and carbon filters. Barry says the process preserves the flavor. But it wasn't always that way.
4: Yeah, it used to be, um, they used to send the worst quality coffee to the decaffeinator because the decaffeinator destroyed it anyway.
6: Then, about 10 years ago, the process got better. And so did the beans.
4: So now, uh, if you send us really good quality coffee, we'll send it back to you just minus the caffeine.
6: The better the bean, the pricier the product. Kicking Horse and Salt Spring Coffee, Tim Hortons, they all use the Swiss water process to decaffeinate their beans. And so do hundreds of other roasters. And even though this place is all about taking the jitters out of coffee, you don't have to switch to decaf to work here.
4: We, we used to put decaffeinated coffee in the lunchroom, but we found that the productivity dropped too much. So <laughs> we decided we have to go back and put caffeine in the coffee, so.
6: Hallelujah. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman.
0: Do you care about the big stuff but hate politics? Yes, I guess. Is your name Jesse and yep. my name is Reese? Yes. And this is Canadian Politics is Boring. It is. We have had 200 episodes of endless fun. We talk about some crazy past politicians. Mackenzie King used to get literal advice on how to run the country from seances. Pierre Polyev stealing chicken fingers. So this is not your <laughs> typical Canadian politics <laughs> how did show. forget that? <laughs> Canadian Politics is Boring. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. That's Canadian Politics is Boring. This is The Cost of
1: Living. I'm Paul Havershrood. Next up, Ken Sia in Calgary. He has a question about how we pay for stuff and why anyone still goes analog. We live in a digital age with credit cards, e-transfers. I am wondering, what about checks? Why do we still have them? Are they necessary? Ellis Cho, do you know where your checkbook is?
3: Is this a trick question? No, it's not. (laughs) I think it's somewhere in my den.
1: But you don't know?
3: I actually can't remember when I wrote a check the last time. Like, really, who uses checks anymore?
2: Uh, Probably the last one I used was five years ago. Uh, Yeah, I haven't since I was paying rent.
3: And do you use them for anything else?
2: Uh, No, only maybe depositing checks from my grandma.
6: (laughs) Uh, I've never written a check, actually. I usually just use uh,
1: different transfers from banking services.
4: I got a checkbook, but it's got dust on it. Everything goes on the debit card now or the credit card.
3: When I asked people about checks, pretty much everyone said the same thing. Even seniors with checkbooks in their purses, they said they hardly ever use them.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, checks take a bit of effort, right? You got to carry them around, then you got to take them to a bank and, and cash them. That's just, you know, it's easier to tap.
3: Yeah, it's way easier to tap, and we do. We have credit cards, debit cards. We're using e-transfer more than ever. In the past five years, the number of e-transfers in Canada more than tripled. John Perther is with Payments Canada.
7: When you look over the longer term, um, check use is declining, and it's primarily due to the movement to digital channels.
3: He says in 2022, of all the payments made, more than 60% were with a credit or debit card, 15% were e-transfer, and payments using checks, only 2%. And that's down from where it was? Yeah. It's about a third of where it was about 15 years ago. But 2% is still a lot of checks. It adds up to more than 400 million transactions.
7: That's still a lot of payments. Um, you know three over three trillion uh in value for checks, so yes, while percentage wise in comparison to other methods, there's still something happening there
1: well, yeah, no doubt three trillion is a chunk of change,
3: yeah, because people writing checks are writing big checks. John says the average was about nine thousand dollars,
1: okay, so people pretty much just take their checkbook out for the big stuff
3: for the big stuff. Checks are still used to do business in industries like construction or contracting, you know, where you're dealing with large sums of money, like Darwin Bond, who owns a home renovation company in Calgary.
4: We have been using checks since day one, and we still use them today just as often as we did 23, 24 years ago.
3: He uses checks for everything. It's how he pays his suppliers, his employees, and it's how he expects to be paid by customers.
1: Do you know how his customers feel about that?
3: He says a lot of people are surprised. He says many of them have to go hunting for their old checkbooks because they haven't used one in years, like me. And sometimes he gets this reaction.
1: A check? I don't know what a check is. (laughs) That's so disrespectful to checks.
3: (laughs) Yeah, they learn pretty fast what a check is when they're dealing with Darwin because he's in the renovation business. He's working on jobs that cost tens of thousands of dollars, even $100,000.
4: And e-transfer doesn't really work well for a lot of people when you get into higher sums of money. Um, There's daily limits and weekly limits and monthly limits. Um, And then there's transaction fees. So if somebody were to write me a check, it doesn't
3: cost them anything with bank charges and bank fees.
1: Yeah, it really doesn't. You get your box of checks from the bank and then you're good to go for like years.
3: Yeah, and it's cheaper than getting a bank draft. That'll cost you 10 to 15 bucks. And Darwin,
1: he doesn't take Visa?
3: Nope, he doesn't take any credit cards because of the transaction fees. They cut into his bottom line, 2 to 3% on a $100,000 job. That's a lot of money. He would rather deal with e-transfers. It would save him from all the paperwork and running around. But until the banks raise e-transfer limits, checks are still his best option.
1: Okay, so checks are down, but they're not out.
3: They're not out. John Perther with Payments Canada says even if fewer people use checks, we're a long ways away from seeing them disappear for good.
7: I think there's a there's a, a conservative side to Canadians that, that still like to have a wide variety of payment methods that they can use in different situations. And for some, checks and cash use, it, it's nice to still have that in your back pocket for when you might need it.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you might go a long time and never think about a check until you really, really need one to do some weird banking thing.
3: Now I feel pressure to go find my checkbook.
1: You should feel pressure. Go find <laughs> it, Alice. <laughs> okay, Paul. Thanks for the question, Ken. your radio and by podcast. This is the cost of living. I'm Paul Havertrude. Our last question comes from Marianne
8: in Yellowknife. I was wondering if you would please explain why the Canadian dollar is so much lower in value than the U.S. dollar. Thank you, Paul.
6: Love your show.
1: Well, thank you, Marianne. So the Canadian dollar. All right. It's now around 74 cents U.S. It was about 80 cents until, say, a year and a half ago around the middle of 2022. So to answer why it's dropped to 74 cents, we should probably start with why currencies go up and down at all. The short answer is supply and demand. If demand for Canadian dollars increases, the currency will most likely go up. If demand falls, our dollar will go down. As for what changes the demand for our dollar, that gets complicated.
8: So you have, you know, businesses and individuals that are selling goods and services across borders. And at the same time, you have...
1: Carl in- Shimada follows global currency and stock markets for Corpay.
8: Go. Uh, you have investors that are looking for the highest available yields in the world. And you have people who... are
1: Every day, trillions pour in and out of the global currency market.
8: And so all of those factors kind of shift over time and create the volatility that we see in the, in the currency markets at any given time.
1: Of all the markets in the world, foreign exchange, so currencies, might be the most complicated. Demand for currencies is always changing, and everyone has their own reasons for buying and selling. I mean, look at the Canadian dollar, and think back just more than 10 years, to around 2012. At that time, the Canadian dollar was trading at parity with the US dollar. The big story, of course, was oil. It was trading at more than $100 a barrel, and Canadian oil production was going up. So the world was buying more of our oil, and if someone wants to buy Canadian stuff, they need Canadian dollars. This extra demand for our currency from oil sent our dollar higher. The loonie was being called a petrocurrency. That stopped right around the time oil prices crashed in 2014. Oil prices went lower, and so did our dollar. So, what's the thinking on Canada now?
8: The big change in the last couple of years is that investors became more aware of the uh, debt, uh, the the indebtedness issue in Canada. um, And they became much more skeptical on whether they should put more money into an economy that is so reliant on consumer spending and that that consumer spending is so reliant on more borrowing.
1: (laughs) So we're not a petrocurrency anymore. What we are is kind of risky, at least compared to the U.S.,
8: As investors have become more skeptical of the Canadian economy, they have looked for other opportunities and other places to invest. Uh, Much of that investment has moved to the U.S. instead of Canada. And and that's really the, the sort of headwind that has driven the Canadian dollar down.
1: That headwind is what sent our dollar into the 74 cent range. And again, a few years ago, we were at 80 cents. Carl says we should pay attention to this drop. It's currency speak for Canada... He ain't looking so good. But that's only half the story. The flip side of a lower Canadian dollar is what's happening in the U.S. In global currency markets right now, the greenback is king.
8: It's really a story of uh, everyone, everyone else being sort of uh, on the defensive and the U.S. dollar continuing to steamroll ahead. It's basically the only game in town for the global economy right now. Um, and as a result, the dollar is, is outperforming virtually everything else.
1: Global investors like the looks of the U.S. economy. Interest rates are also higher there than they are here. That makes their dollar more attractive. So those fundamentals are good, but they're also not everything. Currencies also trade on
8: perception. A lot of this is based on stories, right? It isn't all based on fundamentals. Um, Back in the day, you know, if an exchange rate went up or down, it usually was a reflection of what was happening in the real world, in the real economy. But today, it's often about the stories that investors are telling each other uh, you know, in, in financial markets.
1: So what is Canada's story right now? Huh? It could be better. We have a mountain of household debt that's now riskier due to higher interest rates. Our economic productivity is lagging. We're a trading nation. So our exports are vulnerable to a slowdown in the global economy. Add all that up, and it's part of why our dollar has fallen. At the same time, it's not like we're at the beach and the U.S. dollar is kicking sand in our face.
8: The joke I always kind of make about this is that a currency's value is not a virility symbol. So if your currency is is low or it's high, that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the strength of the economy. Um, the direction of the currency, that does tell you something, that does tell you about what you know, global investors are thinking and even what you know, businesses in your own country are thinking. But you know, at the end of the day, the level of the exchange rate is not necessarily reflective of any sort of fundamental, um, uh, I guess, difference between different economies.
1: Carl says a 74 cent dollar shouldn't bruise our national ego. It's not the only measure of what's happening in the economy. And if you put aside the U.S. greenback, the Canadian dollar is doing well compared to the euro, the pound sterling, and the Japanese yen. For a big exporting country like Canada, a weaker dollar also has advantages. It makes Canadian goods cheaper for the world to buy. And it sends a signal to exporters that says, hey, figure out how to sell even more stuff to the rest of the world.
8: The funny part about all this is that the exchange rate can actually act like a report card. It can help us to, to see what's going wrong uh, and to correct it over time. So it's almost a natural balancing mechanism in the global markets that, uh, that does help to steer economies in the right direction. And, and so we should heed what it is telling us, but we also shouldn't get too worried about, uh, about the negative implications of a weak Canadian dollar.
1: So the value of our dollar is based on a mishmash of fundamentals and narratives the value of the trade between the U.S. and Canada, perceptions of our economy today, and guesses for where it's going in the future. And when that all comes out in the wash, you get about 74 cents U.S. Hope that got to it, Marianne. Thanks for the question. Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keane, with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Havershrood. Thanks for listening.